Well, this is uh, this is new. Sitting in front of a microphone—that's not what we usually do, huh, Joanna? No, I think this is my very first time ever. <laughs> pressure. pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, this is podcast land. This is Sasaki here in Boston. Um, this group of creative people who are trying to uh, build a better place together. What are we doing here? What's what? What is this thing? So you and I are both creatives and. We do this for our profession. You're a designer. I'm a writer. And I think, you know, we realized we don't actually get a lot of time to think about what it means to be a creative, what it means to take part in a creative process. We're so busy in the actual doing and the making that we don't take the time or make the time to be inspired. Yeah, the workplace is a busy place. We all have uh, timesheets. We all have things we have to do. But um, taking a step back and trying to dig into what, what inspires us, what, what are those creative things that um, we see every day? Maybe it's, that, maybe it's that cool mural on the subway that, that you walk past every day. Who, who did that? What, what were the ideas behind that? What was the inspiration behind that thing? Um, maybe it's that book on the shelf. Who's the author and what was their inspiration and why in the world do we all have it on our shelves? Maybe it's that music we listen to. We want to dig into those stories. We are interested in talking to these people about what inspires them because I I would guess that we take something from them and apply it to our own work. Not to mention, I think, out of sheer curiosity, I look at all the people around Sasaki's office and They're such multifaceted individuals. Everybody has so much richness to their own history and their skill set. But all of us are here sitting engrossed in our own work, hunched over our desks, drawing, rendering, writing in my case. And we never actually get to know each other, never get to know what's in our minds and our hearts. And I'd love to dig into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of the idea behind Design Shatter. Here at Sasaki, we are we're interested in creating these spaces to talk about the creative process and the things that kind of inspire us, um, that kind of make us who we are. And uh, hopefully we can tell people stories in that process. And one of the most exciting things that I'm really looking forward to is getting to bring in a really unique mix of people um, to the office, you know, surely we have a lot of interesting yeah. guests that visit us on yeah. a on a weekly basis, and we never actually get to have those follow up discussions. You know, they give their lecture and they're out the door. So uh, yeah, I think, you know, to the extent that we can get um, chefs and artists and landscape architects and photographers and writers in here to talk to us, um, it's going to be a really fun season. Yeah. So that's Design Shatter. Um, You're going to be listening to uh, uh, episode one today. We're glad you're here. Thanks for listening. And uh, come back for more. Um, Season one, you're going to be listening to three episodes sort of in succession um, that explore a little bit of um, maybe some spaces and creative spaces that are in the mainstream but aren't necessarily talked about or brought to you all the time. So we wanted to make, make room for those people to really share their inspiration, ideas, thoughts, and uh, see where it goes. So today, you're going to be listening to Henry Gordon Smith. And the whole idea of Henry's thing is, is food. He's, he's a blogger. He um, runs a business um, in New York City. And he's super interested in farming. So 
I sort of wonder, what sort of creative thoughts do farmers have? Are farmers artists? That's the sort of stuff that Henry's interested in that we wanted to bring to you today. So this is episode one of Design Chatter, where uh, we're talking to Henry Gordon Smith about the modern farmer and uh, what makes modern agriculture, local agriculture work. first thing you ever remember growing? Were you, were you oh, in the wow. garden as a kid? Do you remember your grandma growing, you know, corn or cabbage or something else? You know, my dad loves to grow tomatoes. Uh, my, my mom's from the Czech Republic and my dad's from Great Britain. My parents live in the Czech Republic. We have a country house uh, just on the border with Germany. And, and in my teenage years, my parents had acquired the farmhouse and started, you know, renovating it. Um, my dad's an engineer, so I was like building stuff. I was either building or gardening. And I, I was actually not really into either of them at the time, which is really funny <laughs> concerning what I'm doing now. But uh, tomatoes, a lot of tomatoes, um, also beans is what, what my dad liked to grow. So that's what we would be, that's what we'd be doing. Yeah. Um, and I was so reluctant back in those teenage years. I wish I wasn't, I wasn't like that, but but anyway, that's that's that, that's what I started with. There's nothing like a homegrown tomato. Yeah, it feels good. It's one of the most delicious things I can think of. So I, I was reading on your website that um, you like to work with modern farmers, and I love just love that term. It like kind of grabbed me. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about what what is a modern farmer? Who is the modern farmer? Yeah, I think uh, the modern farmer is young. I think the modern farmer is connected. Uh, I think the modern farmer is is more creative. I think creative both in, in, in the approaches and the technologies they use, but also how they think about space, think about it more three-dimensionally. Um, I think the modern farmer is is not always, but but is often urban or, or, or grew up in an urban area. And the reason I say all that is because the fact is the average age of the US farmer is 58 years old. And that's been rising for the past eight years, um, and that's resulting in a lot of a lot of problems. Uh, there's basically a whole generation of people that haven't been educated on how to grow food, and so you know, agriculture and that concept, right, of bringing food in the city, integrating the building spaces. I feel like it has power beyond just the food, but to actually inspire these these modern farmers. And and what's been really exciting for me is that that suspicion, that that hypothesis that I had five years ago has been confirmed. We've seen the vertical farming industry pick up and we've seen kind of baby boomers combining with millennials to design vertical farms and robotic solutions and all of this. And for the first time in, in, in a long time, young people and, uh, and, and older people too are getting really excited about this kind of ag tech. And I think... Um, that's what it's about for me. Those are the modern farmers, those, those people that are, want to think outside of the box and, and how agriculture can be brought into the city and combined with their daily lives.
did it come to be? How did this idea spark in your mind? Yeah, so I was in Vancouver uh, doing my undergraduate degree in political science, totally not interested in food. And then I met somebody who had this really unique business model around converting people's backyards into urban farms. And I thought that was so inspiring. And, I, and then everywhere I looked, I just started seeing green. I started seeing green on rooftops, on facades. It was like I had this bug in me. And there was a Safeway uh, supermarket across the street from me that had an empty rooftop. And I started designing a rooftop greenhouse for it. And I couldn't stop uh, really doing that. But the problem I faced was that when the design was done, I couldn't find an accurate source for the yield numbers or the energy numbers or the amount of labor that was needed for it. And I really wanted to design something that was feasible. And that was missing for me. So agriculture was born out of that. It's about presenting a vision of the future that's very utopian and futuristic and stretches us, pushes us forward, but then juxtaposing that with real business, real news. So updates on companies, what they're growing, what crops they're growing, any data we can find, um, economics, just keeping people in the loop that this is really happening. And I feel like that creates a, a, a climate um, that encourages young people like myself at the time to get involved. And um, I was researching the stuff anyway, so why not put it online? So that's how it started. That's how agriculture started. And it's been going for how long now? Yeah, it's a little over five years now. Five years. And so where, where have you come in five years with it? You know, the, the seed that you started with um, from this thing in Vancouver to, to where you are now, you're in Brooklyn. Um, has it scaled up a lot? Yeah. So what happened was I, I finished my studies in Vancouver and then I was like, okay, well, am I actually going to build a career out of this? Is there a way? What am I going to do? Um, and so I took some online courses in food security and urban agriculture. And then I, it confirmed, you know, my, my feelings that I wanted to get in this industry. So I started uh, sending some of my designs to uh, companies that were innovating in the space. At the time, there was a company called Bright Farms that was integrating agriculture into rooftops and buildings. And I said, I love your work. Can you check out this concept of a city block that feeds itself? Uh, what do you think? And they loved the idea, <clears throat> but they said, look, we're not going to fly you over for an interview, but if you can come here, we'd love to meet with you. So I bought a one-way ticket, moved to New York to be an urban farmer. <laughs> And uh, it was a big risk, but my brother lived there, so I slept on his couch for a while. <laughs> and um, and I was really nervous, this interview, and you know, I didn't get the job. They said to me, look, you're, you're, you're not an architect, uh, you know, you're not a grower, you're not an engineer, uh, we love your ideas, but you know, we need real, real skills. So then I spent the, really the, the, the past, you know, it's really been four years since then, um, just getting those skills, just getting uh, enough knowledge to be able to help people start these farms or be able to manage a farm of my own. So it's been quite a bit of a journey. Um, I had to go to get another degree to be more you know, legitimate. Uh, I studied sustainability management at Columbia University. And then I started volunteering at greenhouses, whatever I could to kind of build out that, that uh, you know, ideal profile for, for what would make me you know, hireable. Sure, sure. You know, you started out as a poli-sci major. Yeah. And you think poli-sci, you don't think creative necessarily, but now you're at the forefront of this cutting edge field. And I imagine you've got to be creative in any number of ways in your day to day. Given that we're, we're talking about creativity, talking to creatives and non-creatives or however you want to talk about them, um, how do you see yourself being creative in your day to day work? Yeah, I think I try to, I don't, it's, it's a funny question, right? Cause I don't know if I was, always that creative and I guess when I was younger I was always sketching and, and coming up with things but um, it's 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 been more recent that I've practiced it um, I don't know I think 
energy first analysis later. That's really my approach. So I just think big and bold. And even in our methodology at Blue Planet Consulting, we kind of uh, throw out the rules and just get very creative and then narrow down afterwards. And I think creating a culture uh, like that in your own professional life and, and in, your, in your company is really important. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not trained in any design process. So that's, that's really as what it comes down to. Energy first, analysis later. Energy first, analysis later. Architects can learn that. Yeah, for sure. Because if you think, if you overthink it, if you're like, "Oh, it's not going to work," or "I'm afraid of this," or "It's too big," "It's too expensive," it's, it, you know, or that material doesn't exist, you know, <laughs> you, you're really you're shutting yourself down before you've even taken off, and 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 you you gotta you gotta stretch yourself. I'm not saying be irresponsible and just you know you have to have that analysis side of it. Um, but that's that's really where it comes from, and I think actually I learned that when I was I was really into theater when I was in high school, and and that's that's something that a lot of actors try is is you know you have to get out of your 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 being afraid of, of failure. You have to to push yourself and throw yourself out there, otherwise there's no hope of of hitting that sweet spot. So uh, so that's that's how I live. creative people, thinkers. Um, what relationship do you have with architects, planners, landscape architects um, around the country here in Boston or in, in Brooklyn? Yeah, I mean, I, I love this question. Um, I always wanted to be an architect. You know, I really, really always wanted to be. So I don't know, I like to think that in some ways I try and think like it or like them or act like them. But I certainly love to engage with them and, and, and communicate with them. So through the workshops, it's one way I engage with architects is we just participate with them. And, and, and in the workshops, the job with, in, in, in the context of architects is to empower them with as much data as possible. Um, I interviewed James Bieber recently, um, architect of the U.S. Expo uh, Pavilion at the, at the Expo in Milan. And he put a huge outdoor or facade vertical farm on the side of his, his, uh, his food uh, exhibit. And I said to him, you know, why did you choose that technology, that particular zip growth technology? And he said, well, it was the only one that had the data, right? How much water it's going to manage, how much it's going to weigh and all this stuff. And as architects, we need to um, know that to take that risk with our clients. We can't just say, oh, we're going to put a vertical farm in there. We have to know how it's going to perform, how it's going to operate. And so what the problem with this industry, the vertical farming industry, is that it's not operating with architects. It's operating separately. It's, it's farming. It's, it's tech. And that bridge is what I want to make through the workshop so that architects can not just design vertical farms, but actually push them to their, you know, usually very influential clients um, so that we can actually get these into more buildings, more spaces and inform. So that's one way. Um, I'm really excited to be here with Sasaki today because I'd love to showcase the things that Blue Planet Consulting is doing and how we can be a support to you as you try and embed these projects uh, or these agricultural uses into more of your projects. That is the role that I want Blue Planet Consulting to serve for architects, you know, number of architects around the world. 
Um, but how it really works with our current projects is essentially we don't have an architect on staff, so we will do the feasibility study for the vertical farm, and then we'll build a team. Either the client finds the architect and, and some of the engineers needed, or we, uh, we will help them find that person. And then we work with the architect, and we do most of the operating uh, you know, calculations and, and designing the, the plumbing and the lighting and all of that. And so that's, that's how the collaboration usually works. That's very cool. There's so many systems that go into building that it's just one other thing you have to specify, worry about as you're kind of going through this and being in the field and, and seeing it up is, um, that's really cool. I, I get excited thinking about it being integrated into the architectural Yeah, process. me too. Um, do, you get, do you grow other things? Do you, do you promote growing other things besides uh, crops, subsistence crops, agriculture, you know, uh, yeah. perennials, shrubs, other, other things? Yeah, I'm really, uh, we talk a lot about, you know, where the, the future of, of vertical farming will go. One of the problems with vertical farming is that you can't grow a wide diversity of plants yet. And so how to mix that up is, is a very exciting challenge and an important one to, to get more mainstream. Um, so I don't know, you know, some of the things I think about are, um, you know, just growing things indoors that have never been grown indoors before. So usually that's, you know, rare culinary herbs and things like that, that are unique to certain parts of the world that you can sell for quite a profit. And, and our, our client farm one, which is the only commercial vertical farm in Manhattan, it's pretty small, but that's what they do. They've grown 300 varieties of, uh, rare herbs that have never really even been grown in these systems before and they sell them to high-end restaurants um, and and home chefs so i think that's really interesting i think that needs to continue totally um, i think there's so many different kinds of things we can eat that uh to, to have that possibility to grow something unique in a small space and, and get that to the urban consumers is very exciting to me but what i think about lately isn't so much you know i don't know what you said growing ferns or bushes or whatever but it's more like how could you grow um, something that could is like grown in its packaging and could be consumed directly. So almost like imagine if you could grow a smoothie directly in it. It has all the nutritional value of a smoothie, but it's it's never been processed or in any way. It's just literally been grown raw, and you just you know take a shot of it or whatever. Yeah. So they kind of do this with tissue culture and different kind of uh, technologies and approaches that have been using vertical farming technology before, but it hasn't really been done a commercial level for the consumer. Um, so I don't have a full description of how that would work yet, but, uh, but that's something we're thinking about. I think that's cool. It, it's like a smaller, um, bite-sized version of like a blue apron. Yeah. Something. something like that. Yeah. That's very cool. We need more ideas. We need more professionals. That's another reason why we did these workshops is we can't just have growers and engineers. We need to have a whole industry worth of professionals. So if you're a marketer or uh, whatever, a software person, there really is a place for you um, if you want to put in a, a little bit of time to get that hands-on experience and, and learn the ropes. You can contribute a lot.
grew up in rural Kansas. My grandfather uh, grew soybeans, wheat, um, had uh, 100 head of cattle, sheep, you know, was your real sort of pioneer wow. Midwestern farmer. And the town of 2,000 people in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, is obviously much different than the, what, 23 million people that live in the New York City area. And so with like that modern farmer definition, is it, is it scalable up? Is it scalable down to smaller cities? I noticed you work in Fresno, um, <laughs> which, uh, or have in the past, which yeah. is only like a million people. Yeah. So I, I wonder how it scales and if there are common themes or if every place is just totally different. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, I, I think it's happening um, all over the country, not just in urban areas. I think it's really about being able to grow more food per square foot. So that kind of removes some of the barriers to entry. I think also uh, there's a, an excitement by a lot of young people, whether they're urban or not, to, to engage with hydroponic technology. They, they think the water is cool, the lights, you know, the whole approach is, is interesting to them. Um, it gives them in some ways more of a, an engineering control over it than traditional agriculture, which often is just a little bit kind of in the ground and a bit separated. Not all. There's really so many kinds of farms, so I don't mean to generalize, but I think it is happening. So in Fresno, you know, that was really about a, a, a workshop that we did there. And, and basically somebody reached out through the blog and said, hey, we, we, we heard about your workshops. Can you do one in Fresno? I said, sure, you know, why not? And it's a really interesting town, right? Because it's just mm -hmm. surrounded by farmland in both directions. And so we get all of our groceries. Yeah, that part of it all comes from there. Yeah, yeah. And it's really it's intense. You're driving. You see just like acres and acres and acres of, of cattle yeah. and, and different farmland. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a small group there called Mobius Co-Creations, and they are, uh, you know, doing hydroponics in schools. And uh, they really believe it as a, a viable solution. And, and, and they kind of combined with a, a maker factory there. We did a really fun uh, fun workshop there that was, you know, it was a bit of a trip to get there, but it was really, really a good trip. So I'm curious if the maker factory prototypes or builds these sort of hydroponics and things for, uh, uh, you know, as the medium. Yeah, they do a little bit of that, right? So they, they were interested in it and they wanted to kind of get some education. So that's why they hosted it. Um, there were some small hydroponic systems being built there even before we arrived. And even some people experimenting with, with insect, like little insect cube farms and things like that. You know, these maker spaces are great. I mean, they're just really opening people's minds and, and creating collaborative spaces. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was part of that. And we do some design, uh, we do design workshops. We also sometimes do some DIY hydroponics workshops as well with youth. We did some in Florida, which is really fun. We just get a bunch of hydroponic kits and some kids and they kind of uh, compete and build them. And then, and then the parents combine and they teach the parents about what hydroponics is. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ways to get people involved and, and active. Yeah. I, I just wonder what your vision is for like America or North America and urban farming in the future. You know, what, what are your hopes for where, where urban farming can be? Mm. You know, I think I'll start with the hopes part. I, you know, I, the kind of bridge from the political science degree into this was also that I was looking at environmental security in my last semester. And so water wars was something that was very interesting to me. And that obviously led to food. And, you know, a lot of us don't realize when we go to the supermarket and we just buy our produce and we leave, like we don't realize the impact we're making and we don't realize the impact that the generation before us made. And I feel like we're playing catch up and there's not really enough time. 
So my hope is that we figure it out in time. I think we have to work a lot harder, which is why I'm trying to do so many things that are accelerating the pace of this. And it's not about building my career or my business. It's about building a thriving industry um, of uh, a body of knowledge, uh, a thriving network of collaborators and professionals that can, can grow food because we've lost a whole generation of that and we need to get it back. And, and that's my hope is that we can get it back um, when it comes down to it. I don't want to be all doomsday, but that is really what I, what I, what I hope for. Um, my vision my vision is that we will stop thinking about buildings and cities as consumers, but as producers. So right now, most buildings, um, they just consume, right? And they produce what? Economic value, you know, or I guess shelter. But, you know, beyond that, they're not really producing that much. So, you know, thinking more utopian, there should be like a percentage requirement. Every three-dimensional space, every room, every building, every city should have a percentage that needs to be productive, producing water, capturing water, producing energy, managing waste, producing food. And so it's about reframing uh, the city. That's my vision um, and reframing the rules for that so that agriculture is like a driver for that productivity um, in these spaces. It's just one type of it, but it could be the driver because it is so, you know, beautiful and chaotic that we'll learn so much along the way by by attempting to do it i love it it's audacious it's radical um here's hoping we can achieve it and at least think about it in a more um kind of robust and thoughtful way i love it henry thanks so much yeah, for thank you for having me on design chatter today um the inaugural guest <laughs> what an honor thank you for having me really appreciate it Next on Design Chatter, we turn the podcast into a playground. Sasaki landscape architect Kate Took joins us for a fascinating conversation about the way children think and play and the need to foster creativity through playground design. But in the meantime, connect with us on Twitter at Sasaki Design or on our website, sasaki.com. You can listen to this episode and more on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Just search for Design Chatter. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line. Um, any feedback you got, we'd love to hear it. And thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time.